It's good to have Brad back. Amen. A lot, a lot of drama going on over there at their house, but they're hanging in there. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. I haven't seen most of you uh, since a week ago. So uh, I spent the last week in South Carolina, rural South Carolina. I wanted to just say I was trying to hunt down and shoot Bambi, but I knew some people would be offended by that. So I won't say that. Uh, but I was deer hunting in South Carolina. Um, and it looks like that Seth, Olea, hit a home run. I saw the deer he took. First deer, he started way up here. And now he's got to work his way down to where I shoot. You know, <laughs> what comes out on me. But uh, it was a great week. One of the neat things about it, it's very out and about from everything, not much of television. It was great. I had no coverage of the election on Tuesday night whatsoever. It was wonderful. Um, so I did communicate with Brenda every day and just let her know what was going on. But uh, appreciate Jim sharing Wednesday night in, in my absence, and I heard that went really well. So thank you for uh, being there for everybody. Um, what a great presence of God we enjoyed in the service already. And uh, the lesson in our Sunday school time in the fellowship hall was on humility, and it was rich. A lot, a lot came out of that that uh, I'm going to have to, I guess, grab Andrew Murray's book and go through it because it was rich. Um, I'm going to take you to a couple of places. I'm going to take you to several places in Psalms here in just a little bit. And uh, over in Ephesians 2. Last week I talked about um, the correlation between praise and worship. And uh, I don't know if any of you went to any of those sites that are, are the YouTube on seven things that worship leaders sh should stop doing. Um, I'm not going to ask for you to raise hands. Um, and I also braved, I was brave enough to go to seven things that pastors should stop doing. This is Alan Parr. It's, uh, he's got all kinds of videos. But, you know, as we were singing these songs, it's hard for me to displace what I read. I said, you know what? One of the things was says, stop singing songs that are not biblically accurate. And I can, I'm, it was just rolling through my mind as we were singing. That's biblically accurate. That's biblically accurate. That's the Bible. That's, we're singing God's word. And uh, I know that he would probably give us an A for our, our worship time <laughs> today. Um, but there's something about declaring the lordship of Jesus. The scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that his lordship is for real. And it just wasn't human. It's those above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Every being that has the capacity to communicate is going at one some point to bow down and declare Jesus is Lord. For those of us who are saved, it will be an it will be a wonderful thing for us to say that. Others, it's the judgment of God upon them believing they were Lord or something else was Lord. It's just going to recognize that the Lord is sovereign. He alone is Lord. And the redeemed for us, we're redeemed. I like 
what Julia said about adoption, that we're all adopted. And what a great story for their family. Um, I got to sit in on one, some of their sessions in Birmingham. And I walked away and I told Brendan, I said, this is probably the best kept secret in this state. The people that are working hard to place children in permanent homes, social workers, lawyers, amazing how many people are donating their time not to continue foster care for on and on and on. To place these children in a home, Alabama ought to be commended. It's probably something you're not aware of, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work. For us, the redeemed of the Lord, we are eager to say to the Lord, you are my Savior, you are my Lord. And God is an awesome God, isn't he? Rich Mullins, uh, some of you probably don't know who I'm talking about. Rich Mullins died way too early. He was killed in a car crash, um, I think in Illinois. And, uh, but he wrote a number of songs. But one of his great songs, most memorable songs, is a song titled Awesome God. And in the lyrics, and I tell you this, there's not anybody anywhere near that I could put right next to Rich Mullins and says, oh, he's like Rich Mullins. His lyrics was not, you know, just read the lyrics of Awesome God. Nobody writes like that, but he wrote like that. And here's something he wrote in those lyrics. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. I hope that we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. Mercy and grace. What is mercy? It's kind of like Katie asking us, what is humility? And everybody's trying to think uh, it's being humble. (laughs) But mercy and grace. What is mercy and what is grace? Do you realize that mercy dominates in the Old Testament? You hardly ever hear about grace in the Old Testament. But you hear about Mercy all through the Old Testament. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the word gracious is used and mercy is linked with it usually. And here's where I'm going to take you to the book of the Psalms. And I'm going to reference, it might be on the screen in the NIV. But the first line that grace, and it's not really grace, it's gracious. And we'll get to that in just a moment in the Hebrew but in Psalm 86, 15, he says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There's this sense of the graciousness of God, the kindness of God that goes along with him being slow to anger and being abounding in love. In Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love. Interesting how these themes are always laid aside all the time in the Old Testament. In Psalm 111, verse 4, he has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Psalm 116, 5, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Are you seeing how these things are always linked together? The last one is Psalm 145.8. In the NIV, it reads like this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. 
NIV. If you're doing a word study on this, you'd have to go to the uh, NAS or the uh, King James. The NIV is good. The NLT is good. But if you've got to study the original words, you have to go either to the New American Standard or the King James Version. So I'm going to, I think they'll have it on the screen. This is how it reads in the King James when you can do a word study on these. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Isn't it interesting how mercy is linked with almost any time it mentions about the graciousness of God? But if you look up the word that is translated gracious, it means pity. Along with compassion, it means that God is predisposed to us out of his love. That he looks upon us and he, with pity, reaches out to those who are longing for him. And this is in the Old Testament. But look at how it finishes up, of great mercy. So you have gracious compassionate, slow to anger, and great mercy, all in one line. And this is only a handful of times that is mentioned in the Old Testament. And the word translated mercy, great mercy, is found 240 times in the Old Testament. Gracious is just mentioned a handful of times. But mercy, how is it that mercy dominates the Old Testament, but grace like we see in the New Testament is hardly at all mentioned when we get to the definition of grace. So mercy and grace are so closely associated, God having pity on us. Mercy is something we can extend to people. It means that we see something in them that causes us to have a disposition to help them or to reach out to them. Think about the Beatitudes. This is the New Testament where where the grace of God really begins to take root in the revelation of the Lord. But Jesus in the Beatitudes. Remember when John the Baptist came preaching in, in light of Jesus and as the forerunner of Jesus, they were still under the old covenant. And when Jesus was preaching, they were still under the old covenant. The old covenant would not be displaced by the new covenant until his death and resurrection. But even in the Beatitudes, it says something like this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Receive mercy. Blessed are those who pity someone, who show compassion to someone. This is really kind of wrapped around in this word mercy. For they shall receive mercy. It's kind of like the sowing and reaping principle. But when you look at mercy, mercy in the English language, think about this. If you would say, what is the definition of mercy in the English word? You'll find this. And I'm reading this out of one of those uh, places where he gives the definition. The compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when... It is within one's power to punish or harm them. Let me read that again. Mercy is defined as the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it is within one's power to punish or harm them. And our English word mercy comes from the Latin word merced, which means price paid. Think about that. The debt 
has been paid is wrapped up in the connotation of mercy. Did God have mercy on us through the sacrificial death of Christ? Absolutely. And thank God for his mercy. Thank God that he is slow to anger. Sometimes we need that. We need to be reminded of that. That he's not eager to be angry with us. He's slow to anger. You know, sometimes when things are going so wrong, we may tend to have a tendency to think, well, why is, is God punishing me? I know none of you have had this thought before. When things are going so haywire, it's like, have I done something wrong? Is this coming on me because I, I'm off track somehow and you're trying to pull me on track? And I think it's in those moments we need to remember that God is slow to anger. There was a specific day in Israel when the national sins of the entire nation was dismissed on a festival. You remember the name of that festival? In the Hebrew, it's Yom Kippur. You remember what Yom Kippur is, right? It is the removal of sin. It is the Day of Atonement. It is the Yom Kippur. You, if you want to read this, you ought to read Leviticus 16 every once in a while just to get a feel on the one time that God is going to do something through a, a sacrifice that would remove all the sins of Israel away from the nation was on that day. I'll just try to sum it up a little bit. Aaron, on the very first Yom Kippur, when the temple was built and the holy place and the most holy place was set up, he couldn't go behind that veil except on one day, and it was Yom Kippur, only one day. Before he went by that veil, he had to sacrifice an animal for his sins. He had to go through this elaborate thing of getting ready. He had to wash put on the priestly garb. He had to do his own sacrifice, take the blood of that animal behind the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of Covenant and come back out. And there was two goats that they would choose. And he would cast lots and one of the goats would be determined the Lord's goat and the other one, you might have heard this term before, would become the scapegoat. The Lord's goat was to be killed and now that Aaron had sacrificed for his own sins, he takes the blood of that goat behind the, the curtain, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, comes back out, places his hand on the live goat, and confesses the sins of the nation of Israel over that goat. And there was a man assigned to take that goat as far away from the people of God as they could take it so that he would not return. And it was the symbol of God removing the sins of Israel away from them. And it didn't mean that they was going to have a change of heart. It didn't mean that they would have a new disposition toward God. It just meant on that day, God in his way was saying, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. I'm removing those sins. But guess what happened the next day? There was sin. There was sin the day after that. And they'd have to go through a whole year, and here they'd do it all over again. Why? Because it would not permanently ever take away their sins. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 9. 
the blood of goats and bulls. And that's a direct reference to Yom Kippur because it's the only time in a sacrifice of that kind of caliber that goats were used. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Grace as we know it as the people of God came to us through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. No passage better describes this than Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus. This is a great section of Ephesians 2. I'm just going to read this first section. As for you, you, before you came to know the Lord, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. All of us were in that group, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. And, and when you see in the New Testament how mercy is elevated because grace comes in with it. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I hope and pray that we will find a way to bathe ourselves daily in the grace of God. Not change our garb like the high priest, but just be saturated with the grace of God. For by his grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Not by works. Because you know how he knows how we are. If we can add anything to it, we'll take credit. Not by works so that no one can boast. And I'll add my, no one can take credit. <laughs> For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace. The word is translated in the Greek, charis. Charis. And it's closely associated with gift, charisma. It says, there it is. It is by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. You know, I've often wondered how people post a sign. There's a, there's a church down here that says free rice and beans, I think. But you know it's not free, right? Are you following me? You know it's not free. It doesn't cost the people stopping and getting it. 
but someone else paid for it. Nothing is free. The, great, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It was free to us, but it wasn't free to him. He paid the cost for all of our sins. And you think of Carice, it's just, the, the new covenant is all about this dimension of grace. That the Old Testament, you think about when people that had maladies and they would cry out to Jesus, they wouldn't say, they wouldn't cry out, and this was all under the old covenant, they wouldn't cry out, uh, have grace on us. Lord, have grace to help us. They would say this, Lord, have mercy on us. Have pity on us because they could not ever understand and comprehend this grace that was to come through the death and resurrection. Someone was going to pay for their freedom. Someone was going to wipe away their sin, wipe away the, a guilty conscience, wipe away, away this whole thing about hating ourselves, hating what we're doing, hating our lives. And there's a lot of people that's walking around today hating who they are when they need to know they can be changed. That Jesus took all of that, all of the offenses, all of sin, and he took care of all of it for us. The unmerited, this is how grace is defined. Listen, the unmerited favor of God. Now, does that make you jump up and want to shout? <laughs> well, the reason why you're not jumping up and shouting is like, okay, it's a definition. But what is the favor of God? And the unmerited favor dimension of it is that this is all of God it's not of us we simply accept it by faith not one iota of it comes through anything we do or say we believe and we believe it becomes real it's so difficult to elaborate on grace but we know the joy of it don't we how God, the creator of all things, could forever remove the curse of sin from our lives and displace it with his grace. <laughs> with his power, his new creation in Christ Jesus. It is a scandal of grace. That Christ would die in my place, in your place, and suffer for our sins you know this, I'm, I'm kind of like a simple-minded person, but he did this, what, 2,000 years ago in advance of our lives, the totality of our lives? From the day we were born to whenever we draw our last breath, everything that could have been sin and was sin in that entirety of our lives, he paid for all of that in advance. I don't know about you, that just boggles my mind. You see, we don't join the church when we talk about the ecclesia of Christ. We can join this church, but we don't join the church. We're birthed into it by the new birth. We are birthed through the power of Christ, his death and resurrection. You, as he told Nicodemus, you and I must be born again. We can't say uh-huh to two or three questions and that, uh-huh, or sure, yeah, saves us. It's the trust in his death and resurrection that saves us. 
You know, sinners cannot be rehabilitated by grace. Uh, only by grace. But otherwise, sinners cannot straighten out their lives. I, I thought about some of the things that was going on, and, and uh, I was able to take some funds to Teen Challenge in Moscow, of all places, back in the year 2001, in the spring of 2001. They, they had me $15,000 in cash that the Simmons of God says, oh, we want you to take this. I had $15,000 on me in a money belt going through the security line in Moscow. Yeah. I didn't like the idea from the beginning, but they said this is, needs to go to... The, they had a teen challenge center in Moscow. There's teen cha- challenge centers in China, in India. There's, they're all over the place. Why? Because no program can rehabilitate people from being drug addicted and all the other things without the power of Christ. And it's not just Teen Challenge, it's all of these faith-based ministries. You cannot rehabilitate people outside of the power of God. It has to be the grace of God that rehabilitates people. We are who we are by the grace of God. Boy, that lesson about humility ought to go along with that right there. Whatever we are, whatever we become is strictly by the grace of God. And at the end of the way, When we step into that unveiled glory of God, that magnificent city of God is all because of grace. You know, we don't really don't have any room to boast, do we? It all has to go to him, his death and resurrection. Isaac Watts put it this way in a great hymn, and if the praise team can come up. Isn't it interesting that Rich Mullins, I can start with Rich Mullins and go to Isaac Watts. (laughs) They're probably on about the opposite spectrums of writing music. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. I hope we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. Isaac Watts put it this way. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And he concluded with this commitment. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Would you stand with me? Scripture says you must be born again. That's Jesus. (laughs) Do you think it took greater grace to save Saul of Tarsus than it did a nine-year-old kneeling in childlike faith saying, Jesus, you died for me. There's children under nine that experience a true born-again experience. And here's this man that was trying to destroy the church. Did it take more grace to save him than it did for that child? It didn't strain grace, did it? In fact, Paul the apostle would say, I am what I am by the grace of God.
Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Do you remember when you prayed and you asked the Lord to save you? Grace came into your life, changed how you see things, changed your heart, changed your soul. Lord, I pray right now that if there's any doubt in anyone's mind in this room that you you didn't die on the cross and was raised from the dead so that we could live in doubt, so that we could live in peace and have peace with you. Live in your grace, not in any of our abilities, our talents, our skills, or our determination that we're going to pick ourselves up and go forward when we can do nothing outside of your grace. And Lord, if there's someone in this room this morning struggling to believe, struggling to see hope, struggling to get over a hurdle that they're facing, it doesn't take more grace for them than it does a child. And if that's you, simply say, Lord, I give myself to you. I give myself to you and no matter what faces me today, tomorrow, the rest of my life, I will belong to you because you died for me. You suffered on my behalf and you were raised from the dead so that I could have eternal life, so that I could be born again, not just become a different person, but a new person, completely new, a new birth, a birth from above. And Lord, those who have wrestled with this issue of guilt and shame, that those things have been broken off by grace. There's no way that those things can stay in the same room with grace. Grace expels guilt and expels regret. And may in this room today, someone has experienced the grace of God that's pushing out this condemnation, this guilt, this shame, and removing it from them in your name. Not just the sins of our past and the sins of today, but our future has also been covered by your blood. From, the, from every day we will live on this earth, you died for the entirety of our lives. That is hard for us to comprehend, but that is the reality and that is the truth. But on this November Sunday, people in this room, we need that reality today. We need a refreshing of grace today. And if you need to come and just kneel before the Lord or stand at this altar and surrender yourself, say, Lord, here's my life. I give it again to you. I surrender my life to you. Whatever is ahead of me, I go ahead and lay it at your feet. Whatever challenges I have, whatever I'm going through right now, I lay it at your feet, Lord. 
I don't want to carry this load. I don't want to carry this burden. I don't want to carry this fear. I want to lay it all at your feet so that you displace it with your hope and with your love. And as we worship, I invite you.